Well, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We have been uh, looking in recent days at the church, and as the, the church has been growing up, as it was started there at the, the day of Pentecost and, and went on and, and progressed, um, just been a, a wonderful opportunity for us really to, to look at that. I'm just reminded of the hymn that we sang, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And uh, just that's Christ, her Lord, is the, the foundation of the church. The church has gone and flourished in great, great ways. And, and there's many ways for us that we, we think about the, have this idealized view of the early church. Right? We want to go back to the early church to answer all of our church problems. Let, let's have a simple structure with a, a simple faith, which led to much sacrifice and, and love and prayer on the part of those in the early church. And we can get sucked into that, and I think it's a good thing to get sucked into. Um, however, um, there's one thing that people forget about the early church we're reading about in the book of Acts. Is that church was at a time of revival. It's a time when God, the Holy Spirit, was, was moving among His people to do great things. I and mean, the only reason why thousands of people believed on the day of Pentecost is because the Holy Spirit came and filled thousands of people. The only reason why the apostles were able to preach with such boldness and, and success is because they too were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit was blessing their, their work and their ministry. The only reason why the apostles were able to perform their miracles is because the power of the Holy Spirit was in them in that way. The great missionary enterprise of the early church was initiated, empowered, and guided by the Holy Spirit. We'll even see some of that next week. The Holy Spirit guiding where they should go, having dreams and visions, because there was a time of, of revival. And, and so much of what happened in the early church is actually impossible for us, apart from the Spirit of God moving to bring revival in our day and age. Now, there have been times through the years when God's Spirit has come, and there has been a revival in the earth. Though it, it's not the norm of the history of the church, but from time to time, God does this in His sovereign pleasure. He pours out His Spirit upon the church and revival comes. And during these days, a heightened sensitivity to spiritual things are all across the world and all across the area where the revival is happening. Many people become aware of their sins. Many people come and flood churches looking for hope and many are converted in the day of revival. But it's really, it's nothing that we can do. It's all the Holy Spirit when He, God, sovereignly designs and plans and initiates to do that among His people you know, I, I was reminded this week, because I, I finished a book, uh, just right up there on the screen, you can see it, The Pastor of Kilsith. I'm not sure if you're ever familiar with this book. I'd hold this book up, but I only read it electronically. You can find it at archive.org. If you look just The Pastor of Kilsith, you can read it. That's what I read. And uh, it was just a fascinating book about William H. Burns, who's the guy there on the right. And uh, he was a pastor in the 1800s in Scotland. The book is written by Islay Burns, his, his son. And uh, this book, Islay wrote, is, is very difficult to write because William Burns was such an ordinary pastor. He pastored um, in a little town called Dunn for about 20 years, like about 700 people in that community. And then he got to the big city, which may be 7,000 people, and ministered of Kilsith for almost 40 years, almost 60 years in ministry he was. And during those days, he simply carried on his regular work. Um, his biography tells it this way. He preached the word. He dispensed the sacred supper. He warned the careless. 
He comforted the sorrowing. He visited the sick. He buried the dead. He lifted up the fallen one from the ground and pointed him to who, him who receives publicans and sinners. And these things and such as these he did for 60 years successive day by day. But that was all. It's like all he did. He just ministered and served and loved people and helped them and taught them, guided them, held them in death, loved the little kids when they were born. Just was being a, a normal pastor for almost 60 years until 1939. Who can guess what happened in 1939? I was just talking about what? <laughs> Revival came in 1939. The Spirit of God visited Scotland and then visited the area around Kilsith where Burns was was pastoring. He was just going about his normal pastoral business as usual. Then a change came. He wrote on Tuesday, he wrote of those days, Tuesday, July 23rd, quote, a decided and unquestionable religious revival, excuse me, a decided and unquestionable religious revival took place. We may well say of the amazing scene we have witnessed, quote, when the Lord turned our captivity, we were as men that dream. That's Psalm 126. We have, as it were, been awakened from a dream of a hundred years. And then the biographer went on to describe the scene. He says this, the day was cloudy and rainy. The crowd, however, in the marketplace was great. And on being invited to the church, It was soon crowded to an overflow. The stairs, the passages, the porches being filled with a large assemblage of all descriptions of persons in their ordinary clothes. (laughs) That is, they they just kind of summoned and heard like there's something happened in the church and they just walked down. They weren't in their Sunday best. You can just imagine Scotland in the 1800s, how their Sunday best looked. They just came as it normally was. So the prayer was solemn and affecting. The chapter was read without any comment was Acts chapter 2. And William Burns, this guy here, preached from Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The end of the book actually has the sermon text that he preached from. Throughout the whole sermon, there was more than usual seriousness and tenderness pervading the hearers. But it was toward the close that the emotions of the audience became too strong to be suppressed and the eyes of most of the audience were in tears. That was just the first day, July 23rd, 1839. And then there's pages and pages describing about that unusual season through that summer and through that fall. The account goes on to describe the revival in Kilsith that lasted for months. They had midweek meetings, evening meetings almost every night of the week. Outdoor meetings with thousands of people in attendance. And the effects of the people were obvious. Burns writes this. He said, The state of society is completely changed. Politics are quite over with us. Religion is the only topic of interest. But as quickly as it began, so also did it dissipate. He said that from that year, he had 99 people join his church. Which I don't know how big his church was. I couldn't discern exactly, but it wasn't a huge thousand church, people mega church. It was a small church, probably doubled in size, perhaps. Maybe they were two hundred. Maybe went to three hundred. I, I don't. I don't even know. But ninety-nine people were added, and then in nineteen forty, he just continued the same thing, and no great revival. It's like it just when the spirit of God comes, it comes. 
William Burns continues ministries, loving people, serving people, teaching, counseling, consoling, encouraging. 60 years of ministry, one year of tremendous blessing. And he didn't change anything because it was the Spirit of God. That's what revival looks like when God stirs in the hearts of people for a, a short time where, where, where the Spirit comes and many repent and come to Christ. It's not manufacturing it up. It's not a week-long revival meetings every year. It's God in His sovereignty comes and does what He does, sending His Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I know that I've been at pastoring now maybe 20 years. I've never experienced anything like that. Maybe my, the message to me is I need to pastor another 40 for maybe just, a, just a, a one season where we see that happen. It's only going to happen if we pray, though. We just need to pray, right, for God to come. Are you praying for revival in our nation? Now is a perfect time for revival in our nation. With so many conflicting views and so many uncertainties and conflict, this and that, it's a perfect time for God to come. You praying for revival in our city, in our church? We need to pray. And, and that's what we see in the early church in, in the book of Acts. Right? We see a, a prayerful people, and, and upon them God pours out His Spirit, and they're, they're bold with the gospel, and, and revival takes place. And um, that's why so many people repented of their sin in the book of Acts. So it's because the Holy Spirit was among them working their wonders. It's only right for us to long for those days, long for us to be an early church church. However, people, as they think about an early church church, realize that not all was, was perfect in the early church. When you look at Paul's epistles, you see, particularly in 1 Corinthians, just read through 1 Corinthians and say, okay, what was the problem with the people in Corinth? Many, 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 many problems. You would not like to be, you would not fit in very well at the early church of the church of Corinth. There were, were proud people. The whole church as a whole was tolerating sin, right? They would, a whole church um, kind of excited about the LGBT movement, like is essentially pretty equivalent to what was happening in those days. The early church lacked love for one another. They lacked discernment. They lacked even faith in the resurrection. They were doubting the resurrection. So don't think about this early church as, hey, this wonderful thing. And even as we've been working through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, we've seen some of the problems there. Right? When Jesus ascended into heaven, he had a, maybe a hundred followers, and they were fearful. They were up in the upper room, and they locked the door because they were fearful of the Jews. In Acts 5, we read of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and being struck dead at that moment. In Acts 6, we read of how there weren't enough people serving. Just need people to serve. There weren't enough people serving the widows particularly. And so some complaints and arguing arose, uh, rose up among the people. The early church was high in prejudice. The Jews were highly prejudicial against the Gentiles. Far more than the black-white divide that we have today in our churches, in our culture today. When Peter brought the gospel to Gentiles, the church criticized him and, and said, you went to the uncircumcised and you ate with them? Peter himself called it unlawful for him to do that. Further, there were doctrinal problems in the early church. We've been looking at those in Acts chapter 15 where, where you've turned. Right? When people right, came of the Jews... We're saying that these Gentiles who came to faith and believed in Jesus, Acts 15 and verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Further, they were requiring these people, these Jewish people, to keep the law of Moses. 
And, and, and the church was gathered to try to deal particularly with this controversy. And so we've seen over the past couple of weeks, we've seen how there was uh, in Acts 15, so Jerusalem council and, and how there was argument going back and forth. Finally, Peter stood up. And he told of his experience in going to Cornelius in Acts 10 and going to the house of the Gentiles. That God is the one who initiated, God who went. And without circumcision, right, God just came upon them. They didn't have to keep some ritualistic law. The Holy Spirit testified to them that they're saved by grace in the same way that we are saved. And then Paul and Barnabas stood up and they told about their missionary journey to the island of Cyprus and up then through southern Galatia and back. And they said, God is the one who did it. God was doing all these things among the Gentiles. And we never commanded them to be circumcised. We never commanded them to keep the law of Moses as a, a way to get to God. It's the, we go through Jesus. And finally, then, James stood up and put forth his recommendation the church into unity. You remember he said that the Gentiles coming to faith, you don't have to submit to the ceremonial law of Moses. But there are some things that we're going to counsel you to avoid because it's so stenchful to the Jews. And this way, as we left last week, at the end of uh, verse 35, we, we left the church in happy unity. There was great joy. There was great unity. Acts chapter 15, verse 32, when this news of, of what they're going to require, the Jews are going to require the Gentiles, was no circumcision, no, no submission to the law of Moses. Just stay away from these things that you know the Jews hate. They rejoice because of its encouragement. And that's where we left it, a happy, unified church. But as happy and as unified as wonderful things were last week, this week we're going to see the ugly side of things. We're going to see the leaders of the church in disunity with each other. We're going to see them in disagreement. We're going to see them in sharp disagreement. We're going to see them going their own ways. It's a sad picture. Right? But it's really the, the reality of the early church. And it's the reality of many churches. And one thing I love about the Bible, the Bible isn't written with all these pristine people of great examples, uh, of people who would be lifted up and high and exalted. I've been reading through the, the Bible again this year, and, and just you look at Abraham. You think he's the father of faith, but he failed in faith many times. He's not perfect. Isaac wasn't perfect either, his son. And Jacob certainly wasn't perfect. He, he's scoundrel that Esau out of his birthright. He took the blessing away from him by deceiving him. Deceiving his father. Yes, I'm Esau. Come bless me. Why would you get something so quickly? Well, oh, God, God blessed me and that's how I got it. It's like, these are liars. and These are the patriarchs. And the Bible, that's how the Bible speaks. Is this, these people that are, are wicked that God does a work in them and changes them and transforms them. And here we're going to see the ugly side of... Uh, Barnabas and Paul. It's going to bring a lot of practical lessons for us today. So let, let's read. Verses 36 through 41 is my text. Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, this was after some days that they had been in Antioch, because they were in Antioch, had this problem, they went up to Jerusalem, resolved this thing in the council, brought the letter back to Antioch, and they were staying there ministering among them. We don't know what some days is, probably a couple months, maybe, maybe up to a year. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. 
Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is really a sad chapter, the life of the church. These two leaders set apart by God, disagreed and and went their own ways. My message this morning is entitled Disunity in the Church because that's what we we see. And what makes this passage particularly sad is it comes off the the heels of such great unity that we saw last week when everyone was, was rejoicing. That letter of unity had been received so well. These four men... Paul and Barnabas and Barsabbas and Silas remained in the church and were with them for a time and they loved them. And then Paul comes up with this idea, let's, let's visit everybody. And, um, and then the disagreement over opinion and Paul and Barnabas split their ways. Well, I think Paul had a great idea, though, in verse 36. If you look here, it says, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return. And visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Calling this my first point, just to give you a little hook about what's happening here. I call it a great suggestion because that's what it was. It was a great suggestion. When, uh, when, when Paul said, you know what, we went on this missionary journey. We saw many people come to Jesus. Let's, we've been away from them for some time now. Let, 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 let's go back and, and see how they are. I mean, it's most all of you know, right? Here's, here's where they traveled. They started in Antioch, and they went through Cyprus, and then up into Pamphylia, and up into southern Galatia, and, and sort of back again, some 1,500 miles. And during that time, they saw many people repent of their sins. They established churches. They appointed elders. They committed them to the Lord. And, and Paul and Barnabas particularly knew the sorts of uh, troubles and trials and hardships that they would, would face, because... Paul and Barnabas faced them. When in city in Antioch, there's the Antioch way up there, the, the Antioch in uh, Pisidia, different than the Antioch of Syria, which is where they, they went out from. When they were there, the Jews in that town stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They couldn't stay. They were not welcome because of the preaching of the gospel. And then in Iconium, right, so they continued on from Antioch to Iconium, there an attempt was made by the, both the Gentiles and the Jews with rulers to mistreat them and stone them. So they heard about that. They skipped town to Lystra. And it actually happened in Lystra where they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. And so then they went back on their return journey, right right back around um, to go home. They were visiting all these places. They were pointing elders, and they had one message for them, Acts 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here in verse 36, we see Paul suggesting to Barnabas they return and and see how they are, especially in light of this danger that they might be facing as tribulations. Are are they going to stay true? And and I think this is a good lesson for many evangelists to learn. I've seen many evangelists who just like to uh, simply preach the gospel, go go one place, another place, another place, right? They gather people who pray this prayer. Oh, wonderful, now you're a Christian. Now you're, you're with God. You're going to spend eternity with us. And then they go on to the next place. They go on to the next place. They go on to the next place. Never concerned a hoot about who came to Jesus, except that it's a little number that they can send in the newsletter so as to get back more, more funds for their, for their ministry. Many times they have no idea what's happened in their conflict. Con, uh, they're converts. In fact, you know what? Many times those who would pray a prayer 
don't continue on and demonstrate that they're not true believers. I mean, that, that was in Kilsith. So many people believed in 1839. Not all of them remained true to the faith. Many were caught up in the excitement of the day. But then when things came up, whether it's hardship or the worries of the world, they just they fell away. But 99 in Kilsith remained on. Paul knew of this danger about how people could fall away, right? Not demonstrating themselves to be true. Jesus taught about it, right? Remember the parable of the sower and the seed? You got four different seeds on four different soils. And some of the seeds didn't grow at all because they were on the path. And some grew up, but the worries of the world, the persecution, the hardship said, I'm, it's not worth it to follow Jesus. But those that sprouted up, that bore fruit, right? Those are the ones who remained. And those, by the way, I believe, are the authentic and the true in which their good soil, the word of God, has sunk and it has kept them to, to press on. They're the genuine believers who will see the kingdom of God. He who endures to the end to be saved, right? Through many tribulations will enter the kingdom of God. And when that word has come deep within you, God will empower you then to walk through those ways and he will preserve the saints all the way. But Paul is simply suggesting they go and check out their long-term fruit. See, see of all those professions, see who it is who are genuine, who really grasped what it meant to follow Jesus. And so they went. They wanted to go to Salamis and Paphos and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. It was a great suggestion. But with the suggestion came different opinions. And this is where we see the unity of the church, disunity of the church begin. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them in the work. Now this takes us back to the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. If you remember, they were, were sent out from Antioch. When they were sent out, they, they weren't sent out alone. They had a traveling companion for them, uh, who John called Mark. And you can even look at that in chapter 13 is where the missionary journey began. And, and in verse 5, it it said they had John to assist them. This is John who's called Mark. Um, this is the same Mark, by the way, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he would prove himself to be a mighty servant of, of Christ. But John Mark was with them as they sailed to Cyprus. And, and John Mark was with them as they preached, walked through that island and, and preached in all the synagogues along the way. And, and John Mark was with them as they went up to Pamphylia. But when they arrived in Pamphylia, Acts 13, 13, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why John left them. We, we don't know. Um, but apparently, it wasn't all under good circumstances. If it was under good circumstances, Paul would have gladly taken him back. There are probably some bad circumstances, which why he, he left. The, the only clue that we have about why John might leave is what he experienced as he was was traveling down across that, across that island of Cyprus. Like, what, what experience, what, what happened there? And there was experience in Paphos, which could have been jolting to uh, maybe a young believer or, or someone new or maybe someone not just sturdy in the faith. You remember that? That, that uh, Paul met this false prophet named Bar-Jesus and rebuked him to his faith. In Acts 13 and verse 10, he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And they said, now you're going to be blinded. And he was blinded. And he was going around looking for people who were going to, uh, to lead him about. 
And that's the only experience that we know of Mark. Mark would have seen lots of wonderful things in terms of, of believing Jews coming and believing the Messiah as they travel across that island. But this perhaps opened the eyes of Mark to the spiritual warfare in which he was engaged. And maybe he couldn't take it. Maybe it was too much for him. He ran home to his mama. In fact, that's where he did. He went back to Jerusalem. That's where his mother is. You remember in Acts chapter 12, there was this prayer meeting. It was held in the house of, of Mary who was John Mark's mother. So maybe he's going back home just looking for something. It's not like he got a telegram and said, oh, my mother's ill and went back home. I think he was running home because of some difficulty. That's what I think is the best. It's the only data we have about why John Mark left them. But I think it was under bad circumstances. And that's why in verse 38, Paul thought best not to take with them John Mark. And surely Paul thought that history could repeat itself. In their first missionary journey, John Mark had a, some sort of bad situation on their first trip. And, and Paul didn't want to be placed in a difficult situation again where John might depart. I mean, Barnabas, on the other hand, had a, had a different take. It says in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. And it's easy to know why Barnabas thought this. right? Barnabas, do you know Barnabas' name isn't Barnabas? You remember what his, his name really is? Anyone got that? No. His name is Joseph. How do you get the name Barnabas? Barnabas means son of encouragement, and the apostles gave it to him as a nickname. What, what do you think is true about Barnabas? He's an encourager. He, like, encourages everybody. He lifts people up. He speaks kindly. He focuses on the good in people and not the bad. He believes in people, willing to give them an opportunity. Right? In fact, you remember when Paul was first converted on the road to Damascus? Paul had set out to persecute these Christians there, and on the way, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and struck him blind and and basically then at that point, Paul repented and believed and trusted in Jesus and really saw Jesus the Messiah and started preaching in the synagogues in Damascus. So he goes to the Jews, right? And he said, no, 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 Jesus is the Messiah. And then we went back to Jerusalem. He tried to associate with the Christians, the disciples down there. They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. Who believed in Paul? Barnabas believed in Paul. Acts 9, verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That was Barnabas. He was generous. You see that in Acts chapter 4, giving much of his money to the, to the church. He, he believed in people. He believed in second chances. And right here, he believed in John Mark. He wanted John Mark to go with them on the visit to the journey. Now, it also helped that John Mark was his cousin, right? So he had known him from a long time and he... He believed, but it was not out of character for Barnabas, the encourager, to take a risk again with Mark. And so there it stands, different opinions. Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul said, no way. Right? But this is all it was. It was an opinion. Barnabas saw it one way. Paul saw it another way. Super applicable to the church, you think? One person sees it one way. One person sees it another way. How many times have you seen different opinions among us, the church? Maybe you don't see it as much as uh, I see it as a pastor or leader, but we have different opinions about Sunday morning format, about small group format, about how we allocate our budget, 
How much goes to missions? How much to support staff? How much to building improvements? We have different opinions about the behavior of our children at church. Running through the hallways. We have difference of opinion about that. Some pastors who love kids. It's not, I see kids running and having a joy in church. I'm like, yeah! And others are like, no, can't run! Okay, there's difference of opinions there, right? And I understand, right, we need to be careful, but there's difference of opinions. Difference of opinions about food. Coffee in the auditorium. Can we do that? We're going to spill. Yeah, we're going to spill. Should we do it? Should we not? <laughs> Gary's trying to get us to have coffee in the auditorium, that's for sure. <laughs> we have differences about uh, music selection or about special music or how we do that or about children's church. Which curriculum is the best? About our monthly potlucks. How are we doing those? What's the best way to do those? Difference of opinions about what books should be in the library. Or, or the air fresheners, or the snacks in the nursery, or the Christmas decorations, or the website, or the logo. Different opinions about how the ministry should be run. Highly organized, right? Lots of people just doing a task. Or genuinely desire, right? We just wait for volunteers to come. We need bulletin boards to announce everything. We need a phone tree to get prayer notices out. Whenever there's a big project, there's opinions about colors of the walls and colors of the carpets, the countertops, the timing of when it's going to get done, how's it going to get done, how are we going to fund it, right? Are we just going to have an offering box in the back of our church all the time? Are we going to pass the plate? Are we going to really have campaign funds? All these different opinions. It goes on and on and on. I'm just talking about from a high church level. And then that's not even different of opinions about how, whatever, interpersonally. Children or family or job or what you're doing with your time and activity and all that sort of stuff. Listen, whenever you have two Christians at church, you've got three opinions. Just how it works. With Paul and Barnabas, that's what it was. It was opinion. Paul said no. Barnabas said yes. And, and how they dealt with it is really what's very sad. There was a sharp disagreement. Now, we can disagree on our opinions. Like, we, we certainly can. In fact, it's healthy for us to have different opinions. Okay? To, to differ on those. And because we're not a cult. What does a cult do? A cult gets everyone to think the same way. Get in your mind. We all need to think the same about everything and all be on the same. That's not what the church is. We're all different. Right? We all got to be the same political party. We all got to have the same racial view. Right? We all have the same view on COVID. That's not what it is. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. It is Christ and the gospel where we need to be unified. We should have lots of opinions. In fact, if you read anything in 1 Corinthians 12, it speaks about all the different sorts of people in the church. But there's one Lord, one faith, one spirit. But there's a way to hold your opinions, which is a good way, and there's a way to hold your opinions, which is a bad way, as church history has taught us. In essentials, help me, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, harmony, and in all things, charity. Charity just means love. In essentials, unity, non-essentials, harmony, in all things, charity. So let me, let me ask you about taking John Mark on the, uh, the, um, the missions trip. What, what category would that fall in? Is that essentials? You know, is that non-essentials? Yeah, probably. There should be harmony there, but there was not harmony among Paul and Barnabas. We read in verse 39, again, there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from one another. Now, again, it's okay for them to disagree. Because that's how life works. We have different views. We see things differently for sure. But I believe it was not okay to have a sharp disagreement. 
from which they separated. It was so bad that they separated from each other from this dark, sharp disagreement. And I say that because of what Paul said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You've heard these words before, yes? Probably at a wedding, right? You've heard about all this romantic love and, and what it is, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, this really was a rebuke to the church at Corinth, who wasn't all these things, by the way. But there's one, one phrase in here I want to focus your attention upon. It says, love is not irritable. Um, it's often translated in most every other translation rather than ESV. Love is not provoked. That is, love doesn't take a disagreement and turn it into a fight. Love doesn't take a difference of opinion and turn it into something sour. But that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. You could just as well translate verse 39. And there arose a provocation so that they separated from one another. And I think this disagreement from one another was, was not just, I got my opinion, you get your opinion, okay, well, right, we're, we're one in Christ, let's continue to do this. It was, no, it was a fighting, it was a provocation and love is not provoked. Love doesn't go to those things. So I would just say Paul and Barnabas were not loving towards one another. That's why it was wrong, their disagreement. with. That's why it was disunity. They had a sharp disagreement. Now, we don't have volume level in the Bible, right? It's not, a, it's not an iPad. We can't just like, turn it up and just listen to what's happening there. But I suspect, perhaps, if you were in the other room, Paul and Barnabas may have been behind that door. We could have heard this sharp disagreement. Maybe not all the words, but we could have heard the volume of the tempers and the accusations and the justifying. They were not following in essentials unity and non-essentials harmony and all things charity. Charity is love. Paul and Barnabas Smith were not loving each other at that moment. And what's so shocking about this is the level and depth of their relationship. Just think about Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas stuck his neck out for Paul when Paul was converted. To bring him back to the Christians in Jerusalem. Barnabas believed in Paul enough that, that when they needed a teacher in Antioch, he went up to Tarsus and said, Saul, you're the guy. Why don't you come down here and be a, a teacher here for the church? And he was there for a couple years. Barnabas and Paul spent many hours together in travel. You know, there's a way when you travel together, whether it's on a plane or a bus or, or in a car or or walking on a path where, where you just spend time traveling with one another. Your hearts can be linked because you have so much time to, to talk or to go through. Hey, look at that. It's a common experience you go through when you travel. 1,500 miles. They travel a long way. They spent many hours ministering together with one another. Barnabas heard Paul a lot and they supported one another. <laughs> they could even laugh at, at uh, Lystra when they're both called gods. One was Zeus and one was Hermes. They, they, experienced, they experienced the stonings and the persecution. And whenever you go through a hard something with someone, there's always this bonding that takes place. And so these guys had a great bonding. It's like they were joined at the hip for a few years, gone through the ups and downs together. They obviously had a, a love for one another, but it broke down at this point because of their differing opinions. And I think, church, this has bearing upon us. 
When there's a difference of opinion, let it be a difference of opinion. Let's not rise to the level of provocation. Let's not let it arise to the point of separation. Yet, sadly, I've seen it over and over again. Different people, different opinions. They just can't live together one another. This unity in Christ, yes, they can't do it. And even Paul and Barnabas split. By the way, this ought to help you. When you look at the Bible, you don't always look at what people did as that's what we ought to do. So many people, right? Well, look, at, look at Abraham or look at Daniel. Look at this. Look at Joseph. Look at that's how we do it. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is telling these stories, pointing us to how people fail and how we need to follow Christ. We don't want to follow Paul at this point. That is for sure. Now, there is a way in which we imitate Paul. Like Paul even said, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But there it is, as I am of Christ. As, as he follows Christ, imitate him. And they weren't following Christ at this moment. Because love will bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. And so maybe there's people in your life right now with whom you have a difference of opinion. I just say this. 1 Corinthians 13. Let love bear all things. Let love believe all things. You know what believe all things means? It means, you're like, I don't understand that. I, don't, I disagree with that. I think it's wrong. But you know what? There's got to be some reason why this person believes this, right? Maybe this or maybe that. And I, I think, it, okay, I can understand why they are. Like, love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Like, okay, this is where I believe and you believe that. We have a difference here of our, our opinion. But I'm, I'm just going to believe that God's going to work this for the good. And it hopes all things. Endures all things through all these disagreements. So love people through your differences of opinion. Your, your non-essentials where you're commanded to seek harmony. Let that not get in the way of your relationships. And for Paul and Barnabas, it did. For them, they, they separated, which is our, our final point this morning. We see a, a separation. Verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brother, brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, at this point, a question is often asked, well, who was right? Hey, okay, so they, who was right, Steve? And I say, you know what? I think they both were right. I think they both were right. I think Barnabas was right. I think Paul was right. I think Paul was right because he had every reason to keep Mark from the journey. I mean, when traveling in dangerous situations like they faced, you want someone who has your back. If he's going to get stoned, he doesn't want to have anyone just like leave him when he's left for dead. John Mark says, whoa, that's really bad. He doesn't want to have John Mark leave him for dead. No, he wants John Mark to help him. And apparently, Paul, I think, it was a matter of trust that Mark wouldn't be there at his side. Paul wanted more time with Mark. Let, let's see, I just don't think he's ready yet. He's not now. He's not going to go now. I can't trust him. Paul was right. But Barnabas was right, too. He had power of discernment. He had discerned Paul in his conversion, that Paul was genuine and authentic. He discerned Paul's abilities to bring him to Antioch to, to speak and teach with them. And likewise, I think he discerned Mark's character as, as, yeah, deserving of a second chance. Yeah, maybe he messed up this first time, but, but I, I, I've just seen him. And, and I can know. And it's interesting about about Barnabas. Barnabas was right because in the end, Barnabas proved true. When, when Paul wrote Colossians, Paul wrote it from prison, and Mark was there ministering to him. 
what a great reconciliation story. So Mark was around, still in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, he wasn't a prisoner, but he was one who had Paul's back. In the prison in those days, right, you're in prison. You need someone from the outside coming and serving you. And that was John Mark serving Paul in his distress. And at the end of Paul's life, when he was in prison another time, soon to die in Rome, he writes this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. I think what he's saying is, I, I remember that first time when I was in jail in prison, and Mark was right there, and he served me super well. And now I just have Luke. But you know what? Mark, Mark is better than Luke is at serving, right? I mean, they, they both wrote Gospels, right? Luke wrote a Gospel account. Mark wrote a Gospel account. But Mark is very useful to me to serve. So Barnabas was right in the end. So who was right? Was Barnabas or Paul? They both were right. But they both were wrong. To allow their differences of opinion to lead to such a rift that they're forced to separate, they're both wrong. There's wrong, there's, there's wrong somewhere. Didn't Paul say, I love using Paul's words against him, right? 1 Corinthians 13. How about this one? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And counting someone more significant means looking at their opinion, seeing what they have to say, and counting that, and, and deferring your judgment to them because in humility. And what should have been happening here was, Paul says, oh, I don't think we should take John Mark. But Barnabas, you think we should? Okay, I think we should. And Barnabas says, yeah, I think we should. But boy, if you're apprehensive, no, we shouldn't take him. Like, that's how humility works. It's like, like flip. Like, in humility, Barnabas should have been saying, no, if you're not comfortable with Mark, we're not taking him. And, and Paul should have said, I'm not really comfortable, but you're comfortable. All right, I'll bend to you. Wish to take it should have been switched, but it, but it wasn't. They should have bent, or at least tried. We don't know what they, they tried. Or, or maybe even sought the, the church's input. Maybe, maybe bring it to the, the leaders in Antioch. We know in Acts chapter 13 that there were at least five of them because before they went out on their missionary journey, we got five men here. We have Barnabas and Simeon, it's called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and, and Manaean and Saul. We had other guys. You could have like sought them for counsel and just say, what, what, what do you think is, is right here or not? Help us. I'm just thankful for the way that we elders handle things here at, at Rock Valley Bible Church. We work on a principle of unanimity. I, I, I was, uh, um, had coffee with someone that doesn't attend our church, um, but he was asking me kind of how leadership works at our church. And I said, well, we work on the unanimity. And uh, he said, oh, well, I'm not sure what that means. He's kind of like, well, you're the pastor, right? You get two votes in the elder board? I'm like, No. <laughs> Uh, we all vote together. We don't go at all. That's how it works. And so we're, we're all, all together on this. And uh, when there's an impasse, I've seen elders say, you know what, I don't think that's the best thing, but if you guys think that's the best, then, then I'm okay with that. And oftentimes what happens, and we say, okay, well, if you don't think it's the best, we'll just, we'll just wait on that. We don't need to do that. Is that true, Darren, how that thing works? <laughs> totally true. You can ask Brian, and Brian is not here, but you can, you can ask him. That's how it works. I'm thankful for these men. There's a humility around us that desires that, that just leads together. And if Paul and Barnabas would have done that, would have been helped, or gone to the church to try to help that. 
or, or if nothing else, right? Still, if there's no impasse, and I can understand being no impasse, saying, Paul, I'm, just, I'm not going to go there, right? It's a little bit like um, the story. It was, it was last summer, two summers ago. I forget. We were, we were going up the mountain in Colorado, and we were, we were up to Silverton, maybe in Colorado. You can look, and we were like mountain driving up these steep hills like that. And I got driving this car, and there's big, a couple people in it, and it's a four-wheel drive, but it's starting to really get hard. And I'm talking to the guy who owns the car in the back, and, and, and uh, I said, it doesn't feel like it's four-wheel drive. And he goes, oh, it's not in four-wheel drive. Just put it in four-wheel drive. It would be much better. And we were really struggling on this hill. And so I uh, tried to put it in four-wheel drive. And he said, yeah, you just kind of work it. I'm trying to work it. It's not. And I eventually stopped and said, you know what? <laughs> I don't trust this car anymore. Like, and I got out. And SR, who was soon to be married, he got out as well. And we walked up the hill as he confangled it and got it into four-wheel drive and drove the rest of the way. But I didn't trust that car. And SR was getting married, and he wanted to be married, right? He didn't want to go down the hill, and so he, he did that. And so for Paul, there could have been no impasse. He said, I do not trust Mark at all. And Barnabas said, I think it's really going to help him. I really want to. And if there's an impasse, right, maybe they could have at least split up with a blessing. Uh, truth be told, that's how many church plants start. There's some kind of split in the church, and they say, okay, well, we're going to bless you. You, get, you can go your own way, and we're going to pray for you, and there you go, off your own way. Really, it's a glorified church split is what church plants often are. But they could have done something like that. I mean, if anything, right, the, the church could have commended Paul, and the church could have commended Barnabas and Mark to go their own way. But sadly, look, look what it says. It says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, never to be heard of again in the book of Acts. They just sailed away. Reading between the lines, I sensed that Barnabas was the one, despite his character, despite his track record, said, fooey on you, Paul, we're going to go. And so they went ahead to Cyprus. Paul, on the other hand, look, look what it says. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And there was a commissioning ceremony where the church got behind Paul and Silas, laid their hands on them, commended them to the work of the Lord. And it says they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They went up north. Right? So, so Paul and Barnabas went to Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, but they went north across the land in order to get to those same places as well. And so they split. And it's an ugly, ugly period of the church. But as God sovereignly has it, what did he do? He just multiplied his missions team. God using this split in relation, and then all of a sudden you got two missions team. You got Paul and Silas going north, and the rest of Acts will follow Paul and Silas. And then Barnabas, he went off simply. We don't even know exactly what happened. But we do have some encouragement that at the end in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks in a commending way towards Barnabas. And it looks like maybe there was some reconciliation as time heals Time often heals rifts in relationship. I, I believe that there was some sort of, of reconciliation there. But it's sad that it came here. I mean, they could have had two groups if the church would have said, okay, well, it's difficult here. Let's just send out both of you. But sadly, they didn't. Well, I just say by way of application, right? If you're having conflict with someone, if you have an opinion and someone else has an opinion, uh, maybe go to Darren's small group at the Weeby House. Right? And, and The Peacemaker is the book that they're reading and, and studying. you got more room, I suppose. Yes, Darren? Yeah, he does. Right. So if, if you're thinking about conflict, I mean, this is what it's about. The Peacemaker 
Uh, this book's been around for several decades. Standard book, just seeking to try to make peace with each other, trying to make peace with people. If Paul and Barnabas maybe had gone through Ken Sandy's book, maybe history would have been a little bit different. It's a sad chapter, I think, in the, the life of the church, but it has many lessons for us. When disunity comes, it's never fun. It's never good. We need to seek in, in our humility to consider others more important than ourselves. Right? In all things charity, be loving towards one another, even when we see things differently. And may God bless that to our church for his greater glory. And may 1839 come to Rock Valley Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that we as a church would love you and love your word and, and seek to follow and obey. And just as we've taught today, just the, the priority of the, the gospel and just seeing the, the rift. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts where hearts need to be convicted, where rifts are. And that you might help through those things that there might not be strong disagreements or there might not be separations. But there might be unity in love and grace. God, overcoming those differences. And, and I know how hard it is, even if the Apostle Barnabas and Paul could not overcome it, uh, could not overcome their disagreements. God, I, I, I just know practically how difficult that is to overcome those things. And yet it would be a miraculous work of you with your Holy Spirit to work among us. God, to bring unity where only right now division exists. We need your spirit to resolve those as much as we need your spirit to come and stir our hearts and to stir the hearts of those we're talking to and to stir the hearts of those we're seeking to be witnesses to around our community. Um, God, to come to Christ. And so work in us, we pray. God, it's only, it's an, it's, all is vain, as we sang today. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So may your spirit come down. May you fill us afresh. May you stir in the hearts of us, in our city, in our country, in our world. God, for the glory of your kingdom, may your kingdom come as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.